I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... As the numbers on the scale went down, it gives you a euphoric feeling. Like, I'd be like, oh, one more pound. I didn't realize until just a couple years ago, like, that that is considered an addiction. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. It's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. We've got this uh, town hall coming out on Facebook. Look for that. We talked to a DEA agent. Uh, We talked to uh, Dr. Rod Gardner, who was on this podcast. Rod, yep. And uh, and, uh, and a couple other people about how Utah is coming together to educate and inform the public about opioids and how to battle this epidemic. So that's going to be pretty cool. More information you can always find it knowyourscript.org dr matt what's happening um i'm just having a great uh great day so far how about you what does a great day look like for a psychologist <laughs> um actually i i do want to bring one thing up okay yeah skip the great day i've just been doing therapy all morning okay so i mean it's it's great yeah and, time you know, to make the donuts it's it's actually i would so okay i'll answer your question I do like talking to people about things like their anxiety problems and everything because they get better. A lot of times people will ask me, it's not uncommon to ask me, uh, like, how do you do it? Like, you talk to people about problems all day. Don't you go home and feel down? And, you know, obviously some some issues we talk about are heavier than others. And some days, therefore, it might be a little harder than others. But most of the time, I really enjoy it because the things we work on, if the people will We'll do the stuff in between our visits that they're supposed to be practicing. It gets better. So I enjoy that. That is kind of a boost. But the thing I want to talk to you about is, okay. and I should have pulled it up, but we had we have a lot of great listeners who will you know comment on our Facebook posts that producer Josh does such a great job with. And uh, one, one of them, and I forget his name now. I wish I could give him a shout out, give him credit. But mm-hmm. uh, he said everybody should have a forklift. So he's on my side. With the forklift comment, so you're going back to last week, last right. week where you saw you need a forklift no, for a one say, story I didn't house. Need one? I just thought that would be fun, yeah. and helpful to have 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 a forklift. I mean, it's a two story house, but I was just talking about the garage. Like yeah. you can move stuff around. Don't you? So anyway, there's at least one other person out there that sided with my me. garage. Looks like a di threw up in it. <laughs> I mean, I've got so much garbage in there. I've got yeah. skateboards. I've got a golf cart that I got to fix. I've got an ottoman that someone gave me that I th- thought I was going to use after the divorce. I never used. Put it on KSL. Nobody wanted it. I mean, it's just. I got a kayak in there. Uh, I, I've got see forklift. You can move all, move that stuff around. I, I want to go back to your first <laughs> co- your first comment when you said you know people ask you how you do it and you say you really enjoy talking to people because if they do the things that you suggest or you guys come up with an idea you can see some real progress and you can get see them go from point A to point B right yeah how often do you have uh, somebody in your office in your chair who you guys are coming up with something but you know their heart's not in it and they're not doing the work. 
Well, that, that happens a lot. And that's got to be a little bit maddening for you, right? Uh, I would say it, it can be just another thing to investigate. So there's a reason why. If a person comes, you know, let's let's be honest. It, it takes time and effort and money to come in and work on yourself in mm-hmm. any capacity. So that person obviously wants some change to happen if they're making the appointment and coming into the office, right? Yeah. But if they're not following through because the type of therapy I typically practice is called cognitive behavioral therapy and it's a type of training therapy we're training or retraining patterns of behavior and patterns of thinking we're changing our brain pathways and so it takes effort it can't just be a magical conversation once in a while in the office and so if they're not doing it then that's a type of resistance well what's happening so it's just another interesting thing to investigate sometimes we shift gears and try to figure out why they're self-sabotaging and not doing what they say, claim they want to have happen. Now, I want to compare that to the addiction and recovery world Mm -hmm. because we've had a lot of people who have sat in that chair right over there who have been to multiple recoveries, Mm -hmm. uh, multiple attempts to get clean. And you'll always hear them say one thing, I was ready. I was ready Mm -hmm. for the message. You, you hear them say things like, I was tired of being tired. That's what got me there. And so I think for somebody to come to your office and get started, they really do want to see a change. They are really invested in a change, and, and, and they, they believe it. Typically. Yeah, but you've got to do the work. You've got to do the right. work, and that's what right. comes back to addiction recovery. Like, I'm a member of all these different Facebook pages on addiction and recovery, mm-hmm. and somebody put a thing out there. What's the best recovery center in Utah? And mm-hmm. then it was one of those things, go. You know, where they just want to, <laughs> they just want to fill up the comments and see what it is. Right. Um, and you got all these people saying this one and that one and this one and, and, and telling everybody why they're good. And mine was simple. Mine was whatever one works for you is the best. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's what I want to talk about today is you've got to find a recovery that makes sense for you. You know, we've said it before on the podcast uh, that people call me, oh, I want to do your recovery. Well, unfortunately, you can't do my recovery. You might do things that I do in your recovery, mm-hmm. but your recovery needs to be your recovery. You need to make it your recovery. I mean, I like the 12 step and I'm not a 12 stepper. But is it effective? Does it work for many? Yeah, it does. And so let that work for you. Unfortunately, I couldn't buy into the whole program because one, I wasn't willing to do the work. And two, it just didn't jive with my personality and, and, and what my right. recovery looked like in my head. Right. So you've got to find a recovery that works for you. So I used to hear people all the time and go, well, this is his third recovery. This is kind of sad. Well, yeah, it is sad. But what if this is the one? That works. What if all of a sudden they're ready for the message? We got to give that, make that available to them. We we don't have to, but I mean, we should do everything in our power to to let that happen if it can, right? Oh, I of course, I hundred percent agree. So you've got to find a recovery that works for you, and I think some people. How do people find it though? So, like, like in your experience, I mean, I like that idea. I definitely agree with it, but there's the how part. Like, how do you find? Like, how do you know what to try, what to do? What's your experience with that? You know, I I think for me, I was just ready to listen to anything. You know, I had done everything that I knew how to do on my own, and that kept me in an active addiction for 15-plus years because I would try things like, well, I'm not going to drink on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, You know, I'm going to drink every other weekend 
Or if I go golfing, I'm only have three beers. And so I would do what people say is negotiate with their addiction. And I tried to get it under wraps that way. All right. So we know you weren't making it happen. Yeah. So how did you find your addiction, your recovery program, though? How did you find what worked for you? Well, I, I think once be, I was open to the idea of recovery, but I was forced my hand was forced. I mean, I had gotten myself in so much trouble in such a bad place that I knew. Yeah, but like how many people have we talked to on the show who were in just as bad or worse positions and they, they weren't ready? So why were you ready, do you think? I think it goes back to that. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I mean, I was just done. I was just done with the way my life was. And we've talked about it on podcasts earlier that in those last two years – I would go from being on TV, making people laugh, people handing me stuff, free stuff, you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. good, you know, all the concerts, all the jazz games, whatever you want, going to be front and center. I out, think there was even a car with your face on it. A motorhome. Yeah, oh, motorhome. That's what it was. A motorhome. Yeah. Multiple <laughs> motorhomes with my face on right. it. Right. Things were going well. Yeah. I mean, everything was coming up Casey. And I loved it when everything came up Casey. And when I was on TV in front of the camera and everything was coming up Casey, I felt good. I felt at home. But then I'd get in the car and I'd look in the mirror and I'd swear to everything that I would say out loud, I hate my life. And and, and it was audible. Like if, if someone was in my car, they'd be like, did you just say you hate your life? And I was like, yes, I hate my life. I hated what I was doing. I hated where I was. I would go home to an empty house with half my stuff in there, only seeing my kids 50% of the time. I was miserable. Things were starting to slip away. Not slip. They were falling away. They were they were running away and, and, and really running away. Like people were like, I have to distance myself from you. It's not that I don't love you, but I don't want to get caught up in this. You know, like when the Titanic broke and it sucked everybody down. That, I mean, I, I was, saw the movie. Yeah, yeah, I was a Titanic. And if you were around me, chances are I was going to suck you down. And that's not going to be good. So people had to distance themselves. So I found myself. So why do you think you're hating your life, though? Because on the one hand, before, I mean, eventually, and I know people know your story, eventually you lost the TV stuff and you moved to a different place and all, you know, the, but like. Why did you say you hate your life? Because, I mean, on a big portion of your life was still great go, going well yeah. until it wasn't. But, like, what what were you hating? It wasn't your whole life because I'll, I'll play therapist then. That's an all or nothing statement. You know, I hate my life. Well, okay. That's not, you know, that's no, not I, true no, 100%. No. It's so, a little exaggeration. Well, but that's how you felt. That's an emotional statement, right? Yeah. Not a rational statement. So let's be rational. Like, what were you hating? I hated... Who I had become. I hated who... Which was what? A hypocrite? A drunk. Drunk? Okay. You know... Two-faced? Like you were living two lives. Yeah, two-faced. Someone that I couldn't look in the mirror. Someone that I knew I was better than. You expected more of yourself. Yeah. The world deserved a good me, and I didn't think they were getting a good me. Uh, And everybody loves the funny Casey. Everybody loves the the good you, but you didn't feel like that. So when I was on TV and I was making jokes, and I was still making jokes and still making people laugh, and everybody was still happy to see me. But when I got in the car and I got home, I didn't want to look in the mirror. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like what I was doing, and it wasn't good. And so at at that point, I just – that's when I was like, I'm done. This can't be the way my story ends. I, I so going into rehab, you're open now because you, you're desperate. 
and you kind of hit you hit a point where you're like you're you wanted to change how did you find what worked for you when you were there in rehab then well luckily i went to a recovery center that gave me a a bunch of different options and the biggest thing for me was working out and realizing after two weeks without substance in my body i didn't die so do you think that's something we could recommend to listeners like if you're looking for a treatment center maybe one that does pride itself on providing you a lot of options so you could try things out see what works i think the recovery world's come a long ways in the, in that sense i you know 20 years ago it was aa or white knuckle right i mean that was it uh you'd go to these 30-day deals and they would keep you in there uh and then they would release you and there was no thought of aftercare right. there was no real digging into the you'd trauma go right that, back to all the same problems yeah. even worse now because you've been away for 30 days i think 20 30 years ago uh the world thought the answer to addiction was abstinence right you right. know and, and 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 our goal is just to get you away from it from 30 days and then you're going to be cool right but we're now knowing that we've got to figure out what got that's you. not effective at no all. right we got to get you to go back to figure out why you were using the drugs. And it goes back to something we were talking about last week, that although my addiction towards the end was a problem, my problems were my problems, and my substance was my answer. And so we've got to go back and figure out what some of those problems are. Either it's address past trauma, figure out insecurities. Sometimes it is. Like I was talking – I got my hair dyed this morning, and I was talking to my hairdresser, and I was sitting there, and I had tinfoil uh, on. It's tough on. being your friend sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I know. I get it. And, and tinfoil, and, and we were talking about that. And, you know, we've had so many people that come on this podcast that were either anxious, insecure, right. and they thought there was something wrong with them. And the first time they tried alcohol or pills or marijuana – they felt complete. Boom. It's a relief of all that stress and anxiety. And so you're momentarily. At, you're such a young age that all of a sudden, whenever you're feeling like that, click. You know something that's going to get you right. Well, people have said, I found my answer. Yeah. yeah. The, I, the missing piece. We've had so many people say on this podcast that completed me for, for the first time in my life. There wasn't sounds in my head. I wasn't insecure. And I was being the person that I always wanted to be. Sure. And we go back and say, that's a powerful thing. That person was always there, but we just didn't know how you'd get you to see it or realize it. And so that's what I'm saying is that I just did a podcast with this guy back in Philadelphia two days ago. And I am the person today that I always wanted to be. I'm confident. I'm not insecure. I, I know where I'm going and I know what I want to do. I still make mistakes. And I used alcohol in the past to numb the insecurities. Yes. Yeah. And now I don't care. I got a mugshot. I've done stupid things, but I'm so proud of where I'm at today that I am the person that I always wanted to be. And I'm here not because of alcohol. It's just because I now believe in myself and that's a that's a powerful thing to say. I do believe in myself. There's nothing out there that I can't do. The guy at the very end of the podcast goes, Casey, so what's next for you? And I said, I don't know. But whatever it is, I know I can do it. 
And he goes, but you don't have any aspiration to get back on TV? I go, I don't know. I, I mean, I kind of like my life right now. I like the freedom that I have. I like the ability to go with my kids. I like being funny when I want to be funny. I, I, I'm really enjoying who I am. So if that happened, I'd have to really sit down and consider, like, is this what I want to do? Is right. this good for Casey? Is this good for my family? And, 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 and the fact that I can do that with a sober mind and I don't need that to justify who I am or what I do. And I wonder, do you think that's a, a different way of thinking about it? Like is so somebody presents you with a job opportunity to be back on TV and pr- processing that through. Is this right for me in my life right now versus in the past? I think you might have said, am I right for this? Can I do this? Yeah. So it's coming at it from a place of doubt and insecurity versus now filtering it through. And, you know, is this right for me? Which is the only way we can naturally think like that is if we've done the work and we feel grounded and confident in who we are. Then we start reversing our questions and saying, is this job right for me? Is this relationship right for me? Is this you know new house right for me versus am I good enough for those things? Because that's that's that insecure, doubtful self image that often leads people to compensate with drugs and alcohol. Early on in my recovery, don't get me wrong, I wanted to be back on TV more than anything. And I reached out to KSL. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm ready. And they go, you're not ready. And I go, no, I'm ready. I'm four they months. said, no, we fired you. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, I'm sober. I'm ready. Yeah. And they go, yeah. you're not ready. Yeah. And you know what? Luckily, they were smart enough to say you're not because I don't know what would have happened if I'd have got it back that early. I don't know if I would have been ready. I don't, you know what I mean? So that now. Well, I think, and I think you've said it on the show, like doing this show and having all the opportunities that have come from this program to go out and speak, do other people's shows, talk to people in public. I think that's part of your recovery. Oh, 100%. We were talking to a, another guest uh, a couple of weeks ago, and if this podcast ever went away, I would have to fill the void with something because this is crucial to my recovery. This is a way that I give back to the community that has given me so much. So I, so I really enjoy this. I enjoy talking to people about the recovery. I love hearing stories. And so that's why I love doing this podcast with you and Josh and KSL, and I think we should probably get to the podcast. Should we start talking about that or should we just No, going? I mean I thank you for my free therapy session. Yeah, sure. But let's get to our <laughs> You were talking about our Facebook page and our Instagram and we've got fans that always comment on there. Yeah. And one of the first people to comment ever is our guest today. Her name is Marnay Moore. We're going to talk to her and find out a little bit about her life coming up. You're listening to Project Recovery. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today, I think it's safe to say, is a super fan of Project Recovery. Is that? I think that's absolutely true. (laughs) But our journey started together probably almost two years ago, would you say? Is that when you first reached out to me on uh, Facebook? No, it was about a year ago. Well, actually, 18 months ago, about almost 18 months ago. And you reached out and you were going through some problems, and we're going to find out about that in just a little bit. But how does the story of Marne Moore begin? All right. So I was thinking about this, and my first thought was small town girl living in a lonely world. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Nice. That kind of, that kind of action is my life, to be honest. But um, yeah, I, so I grew up, well, I was born in Burley, Idaho, which is a tiny town, southern Idaho. And then between kindergarten and first grade, we moved back to Elba, where my dad was raised. Um, a church house, post office at the end of somebody's house, and a little gas station. So very remote, had to go to school, which was about 15, 20 miles from us, which was in Malta. But we grew up in a ranch farm. I did all those things, um, uh, vaccinated cows, moved sprinkler pipe, uh, just did all the farm did stuff. Did you haul hay? No, I did not haul oh, hay. Oh, that was my nightmare no. growing up. But I, had I, the, I had the hay fever allergies and had to haul hay. It was no, the worst. no. I didn't do that, but I did do a lot of. We, I did a lot of other stuff. Sprinkler pipe, Holland sprinkler, sprinkler pipe. I've done is that kind before of a big too. Deal. Yeah, yeah, that was a summer thing. That's hard um, work. We had a garden that I swear was a mile long. I'm pretty sure it wasn't, but felt like it. Oh, it felt like it. Yeah, but like we just, yeah, that was where I grew up. And uh, um, how many siblings do you have? Three. And where are you in the? the I am the next to the youngest, so I have an older brother, older sister, and then a younger brother. And you grew up in a small town uh, doing chores and, and all that. School's 20, 25 miles away. Um, and how do you feel, like, as a young lady? I mean, is this all you know? Do, did you feel weird or was nope. there anxiousness? Or? No, I honestly, like, I felt like my childhood was, was good. Um, my parents are, well, they were... They've both since passed, but like my parents were those salt of the earth kind of people. Like they were just good people. My dad never, we always said that my dad knew everybody. Um, There was never a stranger. It was just a friend he hadn't met. The thing about my dad is that on the outside, everyone saw this happy, loving person, but we saw a different side of him and that was he was so sad. Like looking back now, I, he had depression. I really feel 100% he did. Um, there were times that he would just cry over stuff and be really discouraged about things. And I'm just, I could never understand it because I'm like, everybody loves him and he, he does all these great things. But I really think he struggled with depression, um, never diagnosed. But, you know, my, my parents were just great. Um, you mentioned sadness and crying. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, um, male pattern depression often ends up in like irritability and anger outbursts. Did you see a lot of that with your dad or was it more no. the withdrawn sad? No. Withdraw. Yeah. 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 Okay. My dad was really, he was, he was just mild mannered. Um, both of my parents were, well, now my mom was kind of, she was a little on the zany side. She did all the, the crazy stuff and 
then anything silly that I do, I attribute to her. So, yeah. Zany. We don't get that word too often nope. on here. She's zany. That sounds fun. It is. Yeah. But, you know, as I've thought about um, my life, there are, I feel like there's three pivotal moments that kind of have brought me to where I am or took me down the road that I went. Um, the first one was in, it had to be between second and third grade. I don't really remember for sure. Like I said, we had to travel to school. My mom went early because she was the secretary at the high school. So she would leave early. So we would ride the bus. And I remember, um, I remember sitting on the seat in the bus and this big high school boy came and sat down by me. And, and he, he was just, he was not a kind person. He really wasn't. He was just kind of a jerk. Um, but I remember he sat down by me and I was just like, oh, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel right. And he touched me inappropriately. And I, it never happened after that. And I remember just feeling so scared and helpless, like just complete and utter helpless. Like, but those seem like justified feelings. I mean, an older boy, yeah, young, sure. scared and helpless. I mean, that's, I mean, you were. I was. And I, and the thing is like, I didn't ever talk to my parents about it. I don't know why I didn't, honestly, because I could have. My parents were the kind of people I could have talked to them about it. And I didn't. Um, I just kind of went on with life. Um, the next event that I feel like has been huge was in fifth grade. So up to this point, like I felt like people liked me, that I was likable and I had friends and whatnot. And I'm in fifth grade and uh, we're out at recess. And this is back in the day where they had playground equipment that's not considered safe today. <laughs> Hazardous. Know? Yeah. And it was one of those where it's like there's a, there's stairs on one side and then there's kind of a platform and you can like go down a pole on either side and then there was a the, a slide so I'm underneath and this one kid um, he spits on me and like it wasn't just like a little spit it was like this great big nasty Loogie. yeah and so I talked to the teacher when I went back in because I'm like oh, that's disgusting and that's awful well so she approaches him about it I mean she calls him up and she's like well did you do this and he's like well yeah she goes, well why would you do that and he goes well she bugs us and no one likes her anyway. And I just, that, I, I don't know why that has such a profound effect on me, but it did. Because from that moment on, up until a few years ago, I have struggled to believe that people truly cared about me. They may say they do, but they really don't. Because I'm thinking, if this fifth grade boy that's popular, is telling me that nobody really likes me. It must be true. That seems crazy that the power a fifth grade boy can have to yeah. affect somebody into their adulthood. And, and, and I don't mean crazy, like, but it, it's it's a lesson to us all. I mean, that it is. And, and I, I will say in a way, I mean, obviously it's the boy's fault. <laughs> and he was being a little jerk, right? Um, but, but, okay, but he also... I've I've done therapy with it now too, and it's mm-hmm. like he was just a dumb fifth grade boy. Right, he was seriously. And so, honestly, the probably the reason that it was so impactful 
throughout your life is actually more to do with you than it was to do with him. Mm -hmm. And it may have been like it is for a lot of kids when they're bullied, their first sort of um, realization that the world sees them differently than they see themselves. So going up until that point, until somebody bursts the bubble, so to speak, uh, and like, oh, my gosh, somebody, you know, they think I'm annoying. They don't like me like that may have never really crossed your mind before. And it probably wasn't true, but that that it's sort of a shock to your system. And for a person who might be predisposed to anxiety and and things like that, it can be such a shock that now it shifts you to where out of self-protection, you're overly analyzing yourself all the time. And so I would imagine that going forward from that event, you were overly self-aware and overly self-critical, always kind of analyzing whether or not you fit in or whether or not people liked you. Is that in the ballpark of Mm -hmm. your experience? Yeah. And so that's why, yeah. And so it's a great lesson to all of us. I mean, bullying is can create horribly long lasting negative effects on a person's self-esteem and, and their confidence in themselves. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times that doesn't get addressed until until we're adults, if it ever gets addressed at all. So you carry this into your adulthood. Uh, you said there's three pivotal points in your story, and that mm-hmm. was number two. That's number two. So um, fast forward about 15, 16 years old, probably almost 16 years old. So mind you, like, I am this, here's this girl who is insecure, um, no self-confidence. I don't feel like people really care about me. I just want to be cared about. And I, for some reason, didn't feel that. So about 16 years old, I meet this boy. And he was older than me. So that was like, you know, a big cool thing, older than me. Um, He went to another school, which... For some reason, back in the day, that was cool if you had a boyfriend who went to another school. Yep. Um, super handsome, very charming, and he was paying attention to me. Like, I was not one of the popular kids. I wasn't. I just, I never was. So I was like, all right, this is cool. This is good. Um, what I learned not too far into it was he, what's the word I'm looking for? A tool, a player, whatever you want to call him. I mean, he really was. He he was not invested in the relationship like I was. He really wasn't. Um, I made choices trying to keep him in my life that were against what I grew up believing to be okay. Um, we did things sexually, and I... That went against everything. Your core beliefs. My core beliefs. And in the end, all that did was just push that self-doubt and made it even bigger. Um, Anyway, he ended up breaking it off with me. And I remember there was about two or three days. And, of course, you know, you're all sad and you think the world's come to an end. Well, that was where I was. I'm just like crying and sad and whatnot. Um. And I remember getting up, I remember like about day three and I'm like, okay, I just, you know, okay, whatever. I got to, I got to get on top of this. Now here's, here's the thing that's really, really weird. Up until this point, like I had never thought about my weight being an issue. 
ever. It was not a big deal. I never thought about it. Why I stepped on the scale that day, I have no idea. I don't know. But my weight had dropped a little bit. My thought was, my thought process was, oh, if I lose weight and I get really sick and skinny, he's going to feel bad and he's going to come back. And that started me down my road of my eating disorder. It really had nothing to do with me thinking I was fat or anything. It had everything to do with just wanting to be cared about for him to come back. Trying to utilize uh, that was a tool to maintain control over the relationship, trying to get him to return. Yeah, and he never did. He never did. But so for about a month, I lived on Diet Pepsi and Bubblicious Bubblegum. I ate probably about three meals during that month's time, but wow. it was... It so was, just starving yourself, really. Mm-hmm. I was. And you um, were 16 at this time? Yep. And here's what I discovered was people cared. They were concerned. I just wanted so badly to fit in and be cared about because for some reason I didn't think people really cared about me. That kind of filled that void. But it also gave me a sense of control because if I'm not putting stuff in my body, that I'm, I'm in control. I wasn't, but I thought I was. Were you – so people started expressing concern yeah. that you weren't looking healthy. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're mm-hmm. talking about? So you started and- getting attention. Yeah. And so controlling your body actually helped you control the feedback. Right. Yeah. So if I if yeah. you if you could control your weight by by having it go down by starvation, mm-hmm. then you were getting positive feedback or or attention. Yeah. And that attention fed that feeling of, you know, do people care about me or not? The problem is uh when we when we're struggling with our self-esteem. And by the way, at that age, I mean, that's everybody is struggling to develop their sense of self and their identity in their teen years. And so that's fraught with problems anyway. But given these experiences you've talked about, um, uh, it's extra difficult to fill that bucket up, so to speak. It's like having holes in the bottom of your bucket. And the more people pour compliments into it, it just drains out, and so you have to keep doing it again and again, and it can become mm-hmm. sort of a cycle. Um, was that your experience, or did you curb it after that month? And um, I just – I didn't – I ate a little bit more, but I, I never got to where I like was eating, I would say, normal again. Um, and that kind of just was my life pretty much through high school. The, most of the time, my weight was below – Average. I mean, it was below what it needed to be. Um, my parents, they, there were two different times I was in the hospital when they put me, or I was, yeah, I was put into um, McKady Psych Ward. Um, in Ogden, Utah. In Ogden, mm-hmm. Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, another time I was at Primary Children's. And was this for the what For was the, the eating. Ho- okay. For the eating. Because so my weight was so low. It was so low. Had you... Stopped menstruating and all of that. Didn't see that one coming. You didn't expect um, you that. You know what? <laughs> I I don't honestly. I I don't. Well, I don't even remember. I okay. just know that my weight was at a point, and that I'm could sure be that one they of the signs and, that yeah. a doctor will 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 use to say, "Wow, we're really at a physically risky place now with this weight loss, and we need to hospitalize." Mm-hmm. 
But I think it's important that you brought that up because I think there might be parents home like Marnay's were that not know what's really going on. And there might be signs we just don't know what to look for. So right. I think that's very informative and, and, and some good information. So you kept this going and you went to two different hospitals, mm-hmm. Ogden and And Prim- then and then like a year or so later, I went to primary children's. And, and I'm going to say this, back at that time, the the focus was on just get her to gain weight and she's going to be okay. If she gains weight, she's going to be okay. Well, that, I mean, and I don't fault anybody. I just don't think they had the, they just didn't really know how to best what, treat what, it. What's the decade we're talking about? Where, where year is this about? Um, it was in the early eighties, early eighties. So mm-hmm. yeah, that would definitely be kind of, that was the sort of like Casey mentioned earlier, you know, our addiction plan back in those days was was called sobriety. Like as long as you're sober, then you're okay. And that we know mm-hmm. that's not enough and that doesn't really work. Same thing with eating disorders. Uh, we know now that you need uh, kind of a multifaceted forms of treatment to get to all the issues that are, are at play. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're, you had a lot to do with your psychology and self-esteem and how, you know, how you learn to interact and get your needs met with other people was all wrapped up in this eating disorder and just – gaining weight doesn't solve that issue at all it doesn't no. address it so you're right unfortunately a lot of those hospitalizations and 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 to be fair i mean a hospitalization is an emergency situation and mm-hmm. so of course the main thing would be to bring your weight back up and kind of get your body functioning again but there needs to be so much more to avoid relapse with that but and sounds like you had at least and just for the listeners knowing if you went to mckd hospital in ogden and then it's sort of like graduating in severity now we have to be at primary children's in salt lake so it tells me that in between those visits things really didn't get better for you um i mean there were there were some times where my weight was up but then it, it just fluctuated and and i don't were you purging as well, no. or just just no. the just yeah, the just the just the anorexic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, my rock bottom for that for my eating was my senior year, and I've tried to kind of go back and think like, was there something that happened that kind of spiraled me during that? And I honestly I don't remember, but I do know my senior year um, was my very lowest. I weighed seventy five pounds. And I was wow. this tall. How tall are you? Five six. Five six and seventy five. That's scary. It was scary. awful. It was awful. And honestly, like I don't even know how I graduated. I did ended you have up, energy? Were no. you able to walk around very well? I or? didn't. I spent a lot of time at home. Um, I got permission from the district. They allowed me to do a lot of stuff from home. I did graduate, but there were just so many times where I, I couldn't do anything i had remember back in the day where there was a water beds yeah yeah i had a water bed and i that thing was cranked as high as it would go i would sleep with two or three blankets long johns i mean i had no body mass i had nothing and like there were just days i didn't were you experiencing other physical problems such as like were you losing hair or or had you have thinning of I didn't rem- I don't remember my hair thinning but um I got what they said it was like a the fine hair all over your body kind of like a I don't remember if there was a word for it but it's it was all this fine hair and I think it was more just a way to kind of 
protect. Your body is going into crisis mode and trying yeah. to protect because you don't have any layer of fat to, to insulate yeah. your body. And so it's interesting how hard the body will will fight to survive. But eventually, if you keep starving it, it can't keep up. Well, and the thing is, too, is like as this, as the numbers on the scale went down, like it it gives you a euphoric feeling. Like I'd be like, oh, one more pound, one more pound, oh, two pounds. And so I didn't realize until just a couple of years ago, like that that is considered an addiction. I mean, there is a, a feeling that comes with mm-hmm. that, you know, losing the weight, um, measuring myself. Oh, I'm down this many inches and whatnot. And the thing is that the skinnier I got, some people were concerned and cared, but then my peers, they didn't know how to react to that. And I looked awful. I mean, seriously, I did. I looked awful. So they they pulled away from me, and which you know, I mean, I probably made it worse. Mm-hmm. Did it? it did. So you said your rock bottom was your senior year. You weighed seventy five pounds. You were five six. Mm-hmm. Um, that's scary. It it is, and I um, when I think about it now, it I don't even know how to put it into words. Like I. Uh, there's so many times in my life where I think I probably really shouldn't be st- still be here, and I am. So there's a reason. So how did that turn around? Well, my senior year um, was where I met my first husband. Um, we started writing. He was on an LDS mission. We had a mutual friend, so we started writing. He knew about my eating disorder and whatnot, and so he got off his mission in August um, we actually, I mean, we had corresponded for quite a while and then we actually met in person in August and then we got married in November and wow. yeah. Seems par for the course. Yeah. Wow. No, I, I know. And I, I don't, I'm not proud yep, to say that, but months, huh? that, yeah. And honestly, I was still just this scared little girl who wanted to be taken care of and wanted to be loved. And so I wasn't ready to get married. So this was the November after you graduated. So you were just 18? Yeah. Yeah. I was not ready for it. He wasn't ready for it. But we, I mean, it was what happened. And pretty soon um, babies came. And Now what happened with the, the, the eating disordered behavior? So he comes home, you guys meet, and you fall in love and decide to get married. Fall in lust, maybe is a better word. But anyway, it's pretty cool. I'm going to go with that. And um, uh, did your behavior change? Did you did you gain weight or change I did your gain, eating? Or? I did gain some weight back. I definitely did not stay as low as I was. Um, and ironically, I was like, you know, if I if I just got pregnant, I, I would eat. I would eat if I was if I had another little person that I had to that relied on me. That's what's crazy about addiction is you will look for solutions in so many different places than the actual solution that you know is right in front of you. Mm -hmm. But you'll look for other solutions to answer your problems. And so I can understand your thinking. It was like, well, if I get pregnant, then I've got to eat more. I mean, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And I did. Like, it wasn't long after. And so um, 
we had two two little boys fairly quickly and when i was pregnant i was i did eat i you know i was probably still underweight but it definitely was better than what i you know that really low weight um did having i and this may not apply but um, having uh, your body go through those changes of pregnancy um how did you cope with that because i think even uh, uh, many women who who don't have eating disorder history feel kind of uncomfortable sometimes with their body going through such rapid changes during and and shortly after pregnancy. How about for you, being somebody with an eating disorder? Surprisingly, it didn't bother me. It really didn't. It was a time where I didn't worry about it. I I didn't worry about it. I just my focus was on just. Maybe felt like you had an excuse yeah. to to not focus on mm-hmm. you because you had a little person that mm-hmm. you needed to so. take care of. Yeah, you're listening to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, about recovery. Our guest today is Marnie Moore. We're hearing the first part of her story: how she battled with an eating disorder. We're going to find out how that came to an end and what addiction started after that. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott, Dr. Matt. There, our guest today is Marnay Moore. She talked about how at 16, her eating disorder started to take hold, took her well into her 20s or 18 at this point. You've got a couple of kids. And I was, yeah, I was about probably 20 and had two little boys. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. No, no. I, <laughs> but many people find themselves in a similar situation, especially here in Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you say you're eating a little bit better. You're still underweight. Uh, what is the conversation with your husband at this point? Is he worried? Does he just think that you've got this under control? Or do you guys talk about it quite a bit? Um, you know, I I don't really ever remember talking about it a ton. We really didn't. Um, but... I think, as I said before, we we were just both way too young and immature to be getting married, and we struggled a lot with money. We just struggled getting, you know, communicating. Our marriage was was just, it wasn't great. It really wasn't. We would have our bouts of things where, I mean, times where things were good, but I don't really remember ever talking about my weight. Um and honestly, like it's just fluctuated throughout my life. Most of the time, I would say I'm below what would be considered healthy. Um, sometimes it's way lower, but sometimes not. But um, after, so we had two little boys right away. Um, and then we had a little girl. And probably about a year after she was born, um, I thought that things were better. I thought things were better between us. And he comes home one night and he said, I need, I need to talk to you and sat us all down, um, and said, I'm filing for a divorce. And I'm like, what? You're Came out of left field. You're what? I mean, there are some points in our marriage where that wouldn't have shocked me necessarily. I would have been sad. But it wouldn't have shocked me, but I honestly felt like we were finally getting to a better place, and so I was shocked. Um, he he was very resolute, like, nope, this is happening. I'm sorry. This is the way it's going to be. So there hadn't been a conversation leading up to this. Nope. He, he had made this decision unilaterally. Like normally, 
came you, home and told you about it. Yeah, normally, like, I can speak from experience. Yeah. The D word's thrown around for... For a while. Yeah, for a while. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, yeah. I remember the first time my ex-wife said that. I was like, hey, did you just say divorce? Whoa, yeah. <laughs> this is serious. But yeah. you're saying this just came right well, out of nowhere. I mean, there were times before... Like I said, we had our we had some pretty rough times, and there were times where it might have been we it would be brought up, and it's like I don't know, maybe we just won't be able to make it, and blah blah. blah. But at this point in time, it was something that I I did not see. Coming. And you were about how old at this time? I don't know. I would say twenty three ish, maybe twenty four. So you've just been married. Five I mean, years. we haven't been married too long, no. Five years, three kids, pretty busy during that time. Did he try to explain or justify his decision? He just was like, we don't get along. Um, this is just the way it's going to be. And so, and he and he, he said, I'm going to go stay with my sister. Now, at this point in time, we lived in a, a really, we lived in Ely, Nevada. Um, his sister lived down there. Our producer's from Elko, so you per- perked his ears there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so his sister and her husband lived down there. And he's like, I'm going to go stay with my sister. I said, well, you can stay here. Nope, nope, I'm going to go stay with my sister. So I don't know, a day or two after this, I'm trying to wrap my brain around this whole thing. And I, my parents lived up in Idaho. And I was like, you know, I got to just go home. I just got to go home for a few days. And I just got to be with my, I just got to, I just got to, I got to leave. I got to go home. Um, get up there and I was late starting my period but I attributed it to stress and I remember a lot of period talk on today's episode well, it's relevant yeah it is relevant so um and I just remember having a very distinct feeling that I needed to get into the doctor and go have a pregnancy test done. and I'm thinking ah oh, it's just it, it can't be and I, so I went to this doctor that I'd had for some of my other kids previously. And I remember being in the waiting room and the nurses came walking and they're behind the, the nurse's station and I can see them talking quietly and they look over at me and they're kind of doing this shaking their head thing. And I'm like, oh, this can't be good. This can't be good. So they call me back there and the nurse or the doctor's like, you're pregnant and I'm like no I can't be he's like yeah you are and they'd done a blood they didn't blood works to be so that it would be pretty accurate right so then I'm thinking okay I I don't know what I'm gonna do now um kind of going jumping back into what you were talking about like how I was like as far as eating and whatnot when I was pregnant um Mentally, like mentally, pregnancies were hard on me. I struggled a lot with depression and and stuff like that. So they were hard on me emotionally and mentally. Um, and I just remember thinking, like with my daughter, I just it was a really rough time with her. And I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this because I got nothing now. Like I, I don't know how I'm going to do this and. Um, in between pregnancies, do you feel like your depression sort of resolved itself? Do you feel like it was? Kind I don't of a think it ever. Issue, I don't or? think it ever went away. Okay, it was better, 
but I don't between. think it was, it never went away. No, yeah. it didn't. Um, so I told my soon to be ex-husband and he, it didn't change anything. Um, were you hoping it would? I did. And in talking with his family and, and my family, they're like, well, this will certainly shake him and tell him, you know, get him to stay. And it didn't, but come to find out he, he had a girlfriend. And so he was resolved that that was the path he was going on was, was to do that. So here I was three little kids pregnant with my fourth had just gotten married out of high school. Um, I didn't, I didn't have time to process the whole thing. I stuffed it later. It came back to bite me, but at the time I had to just take care of me and my kids and this new baby. And, um, so I just stayed down there. I had, I mean, with what he was paying me and I had a daycare business. And so, and I had a lot of great people that were a really big support that helped me and stuff. Towards the end, I ended up having to go back up to my parents because I had issues with my pregnancy. But so a couple months after the divorce was final, um, being in Ely, Nevada, there's nothing like there's there's nothing to do. But um, there's a there's a hotel. It's called Hotel Nevada. And there's a great big, huge dance floor. And they'd have live bands every weekend, live bands. And so this friend of mine, um, we used to go over. If I didn't have the kids, I would we'd go over and listen to the bands and go dance. And so that was where I met my husband now. He was there. And so... Again, started dating. I mean, we started dating. Again, I I wasn't ready to be in a relationship. I really shouldn't have been. But we started dating. Um, Well, you were in a crisis mode. And like you said, I just had to take care of me, take care of my kids. And so you stuffed, you know, you didn't try to process and figure things out and work it through. You just had to kind of grit your teeth and, and get through that time. But unfortunately, what happens for a lot of people, and my experience is that people who are prone to eating disorders are, are extra prone to this, is that just becomes the style. We just stuff it down. We don't think too much about it. We just move on. We pay attention to the day-to-day. Like if if I'm getting up and getting ready for the day and the kids are getting up and ready for the day, we're successful. That's what counts. Getting to work, feeding everybody, putting them to bed. Like that's that's where our focus goes. And mm-hmm. I would imagine since that sort of feels like it works in the moment, that can become somebody's style long term. Mm-hmm. And and so, do you feel like that had become yeah, yeah. kind of your style? And then oh, yeah. you meet this new guy, and and here you are with unresolved stuff, but trying to then start a new well, relationship. And, and he and. Here he was. He liked me, and he was he he knew my story. Three kids, pregnant with one, and he was there for me. And so we dated, and we dated for about eight or nine months. And he even proposed to me. And I I battled back and forth because we are very different. I'm a member of the church. He's not. Different parenting styles. Different life. Uh, experiences growing up with his parents. I mean, just so different. And I knew, 
I think I knew in my heart that it was he would be better off with somebody else. It was more that that they had more in common, and, and I would too. For the listeners, that that can be kind of a tough marriage when you have one mm-hmm. person that's an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, because a lot of the beliefs and behaviors you know, kind of revolve around the church Mm -hmm. and somebody who's not a member of the church uh, can sometimes struggle relating to or wanting to participate in a lot of that. And I think Casey knows all about that. Yeah, that's my exact situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I understand the trials and and you like to think that you're on the same page and and we both want what's best, but there are different ideology, different uh, core beliefs, and sometimes they don't align. And not only is that confusing for a relationship, it's confusing for the children. And, you know, it, it, it creates a lot of lot of controversy or animosity, if you will. Yeah. So did you talk about this with with we, him? We, did we you did. try to be we direct did, and address we, it? You know, it was just like... Love conquers all. We got this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what and the I, answer is. Yeah, it is. And like I said, about we dated for about eight or nine months. And then I, um, at this point, I had been back. I was back up in Idaho with my parents because of issues with my pregnancy. And well, I guess we would, I mean, I got to tell you right now, for a guy to propose to a pregnant lady and it's not his kid, I mean, that's pretty. I mean, that's pretty serious. That's very serious. You know it, what I mean? It he, is. he must have really loved you. You know what I mean? That's. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's the way my brain processes it. Well, that's because you're an optimist. <laughs> that is true. So anyway, I, I end up breaking it off because I was just like, you know, I think it. I don't know. I just I don't think it's what what we need to be doing. Um. I worked up there. My mom and dad helped me with the kids. I even started looking at going to school. Um, was going to go to school up at Pocatello. To, I think it's, I don't know if they're the vandals. I don't know. Anyway, going up to Pocatello. Even looked at housing, like, you know, whole thing. That was where my life was going to go. And then um, this friend of mine that we used to go dancing all the time, She, she we talked all the time. And so one time she calls me and she's like, hey, I saw Doug. That's my husband. And she's like, um, he asked about you. He's really struggling. He really misses you. He just wondered if maybe he could give you a call. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he did. Um, long story short, I mean, we did. We got back together. We started dating. Um, but again, it was hard because I... I knew that there would be a lot of struggles. I knew that. And I I felt like he would be better off with someone that was more, he was more evenly yoked with. And I would too, if I were to find someone, but I also really loved him. And anyway, I got pregnant. So I was like, okay, well, we're going to get married. Um, So this is child number five. Child number five. Doug sounds like a persistent fellow. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, oh, Dougie Doug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Um, he hates that. <laughs> so, so we get married. Um, the one thing I will say about him is that he has always allowed me to live my religion. Like he's never never said anything he's always been supportive so i have to be i'm really grateful for that it doesn't mean that we haven't been without conflict because it's hard it's hard and 
And when our daughter was born, we did have a conversation about it. And I said, well, you know, what are we going to do? And he's like, well, the rest of her siblings are raised in the church. She'll be raised in the church. And I go, well, how are you going to handle that? And he's like, it is what it is. That's going to cause conflict if we if we don't, if she's raised differently. So he kind of saw the bigger picture there. Yeah, he did. Not making his daughter different and, in the family. And throughout all this time, you're still battling your eating disorder? From time to time. So it, yeah. it's kind of taking a back seat, but still it, kind it of has, underlying been there. It has. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's never been, it's never been gone. Why um, didn't Doug uh, join the LDS church? Um, oh, gosh. So many reasons. <laughs> he'd have to drink he'd have to give up his alcohol <laughs> that might be one of the primary ones but i mean he sounds like a practical pragmatic sort of guy with he his is daughter, but, but he really he he doesn't like the concept of faith it's like he's he's an engineer by profession so everything's very black and white scientifically has to be you know all that kind of stuff and he just he's never can't make the jump nope nope so, so you guys get married. You have a fifth child. They, uh, she's going to be raised in the the LDS church, mm-hmm. and everything's going good. Your eating disorders there, but it's in the back seat, poking its head every once in a while. When do you finally come to a resolution with your eating disorder? I'm in that process right now. And how young are you now? Fifty six. So you've been battling this for forty plus years. A long time. But along this path, opioids came into the picture. Um, How do, so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to take a break. You're listening to Project Recovery. And we come back, we're going to talk how Marnay brings opioids into the eating disorder and how that affects her life. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott here, and that is Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Marnay Moore, uh, who's been battling with an eating disorder for the past 40 years. Before we uh, took that break, she said, then opioids came in. And how did uh, that all happen? Uh, I started getting these really bad sores in my mouth. They were almost like kind of like an ulcer. I went to the dentist, and he would give me Norco for them and an antiviral but until the antiviral would get in like the norco so um, i don't know what norco is it, it's a i'm not that familiar with it but it's an opiate it's, an, uh, it's a yeah. painkiller it's lortab yeah oh, oh okay. is it just yeah. lortab okay yeah. Yeah, yeah um and the thing is i had had opioids previously in my life for surgeries and stuff and uh i do know that they made me feel good but they weren't I was more concerned, and I, I, I took them because it took the pain away. I did like the way they made me feel, but it was like that wasn't didn't become all encompassing to me. It was like I want to get rid of the pain, so that's why I took them. Um, at this point in time, and this was around 2015, um, just everything going on in my life, I boy, I tell you, that made me feel good to take those opioids. And I pretty soon, like anything that I thought that I could get a prescription for, um, I would go to the doctor. I would, I remember going to Instacare on a Sunday and they're like, well, it's an hour and a half wait. And I'm like, I'm going to wait. 
I'll wait because. So you were looking for excuses to oh, sort exactly. of get, get an opiate yeah. uh, prescription. But yeah. you weren't intentionally hurting yourself. Oh, no. No. But if there was anything, like if I had a little bit of a sore throat or sinus pain and pressure, like anything that I could think of, oh, yeah. I. So emotionally, what was different? Because you said you'd had, you know, you've had five children and you've had, you've had opiates before prescribed and they worked for the pain, but you weren't really tempted to keep going back to get more opioids until this time. You said, with everything going on in my life, what was the difference? Why? And I have my suspicions, but I want to know like, what was going on that made it tempting this time versus the other times. Usually his suspicions are right. Um, probably so. Uh-huh. Uh, I, you know, I was going to college. I had started going to college when I came here. Um, 2008, I lost my dad unexpectedly and that was, that was brutal. I didn't process that either because I lost him on a Saturday. His funeral was Wednesday and my daughter got married on the following Saturday and then I started back into my next semester of school. Wow. So I didn't process that either. And then 2012, I lost my mom. Um, that was hard as well. Um, just kids growing up, moving out, getting married. My one, my youngest son went through a, a horrible divorce, a literal hell for three years. Um, so I just think all of those things just were... I don't know. It sounds like for the past, you know, 40 plus years, you've made a habit of stuffing I uh, have. all your emotions and everything. And yeah. the body's only got so much room and you can stuff and stuff until you can't stuff no more. And it sounds like yeah. when you took those Lord tabs, this, you know, this time around. They did. And that's, they did. that's the combination. I think you have, you know, when you're coming in, let's say you're going in for something physical. So you mm-hmm. have physical pain and you're prescribed an opiate, you're probably going to use it appropriately. But when that physical pain, when you're also bringing in a whole bunch of emotional mm-hmm. pain, that's usually when the the person starts to feel like that. I need that. I need the emotional pain. And the emotional pain is often the, the extra factor that leads a person to addiction. And so my guess was, well, she's got five kids and the craziness of that and a new marriage and all those things. But then to throw in the mix, uh, two very significant episodes of grief and loss with both of your parents, I'm sure that when you took those, um, lore tabs, it was the emotional pain was if oh. you had a little relief for a moment. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, I did go to my physician I had at the time. It was around 2017. And the thing is, I didn't have him the whole time. I would just get him where I could, um, but I knew I liked him. But then I went to my doctor at the time, and I'm like, this is a problem. And he was super supportive, very kind. I was like, okay, well, I'm really glad that you came to me. And then I went through a period where I didn't have anything. And then 2018... Uh, February 2018, I started having a lot of kidney issues, a lot of pain with that, and um, went to a lot of specialists, had a lot of tests done. They determined it really wasn't 
the kidney per se. They thought that maybe it was just the nerves around that probably had a kidney stone, but then the nerves had just never stopped firing. And so I remember them saying, well, we could give you gabapentin, which is a nerve that helps with nerve pain. And and I remember thinking, no, because if you can make gabapentin and the pain does stops, then I can't get, I can't get drugs. I can't get my Loratab that you're giving me and my Percocet because I started getting that when I started having the kidney issues. So, so they offered you a solution to your pain and your thought process was, I don't want a solution because I like the status Absolutely. quo. I like having an open line of pills. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. It makes did. sense. I mean, I mean, it did. in the attic brain, yes, it makes it does. sense. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 So, um, so then I was like, okay, well, here's here's what we're going to do. So they actually uh, transplanted my kidney. They took it out and transplanted it somewhere else in my body. Um, they can do that? Yeah, they can. Hold on. So they moved it to a different place uh-huh. in your body. Yeah. Okay. Where is your kidney point? It's right down here. Oh, oh yeah. okay. So they said we could do like an ablation, but the nerves will grow back. But if we take the kidney away, it will... It'll alleviate your pain. And so, I mean, that was a big... That's a new um, operation on me, Casey. I, I haven't heard of that. surgery before. that... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I remember, too, I remember thinking this, too, which is the addict brain. It was like, oh, I'm going to get the good stuff when I go in. Because <laughs> now we're having surgery, right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? But no. that's, that was my brain. That was my thinking, my thought process. So, anyway, um, other little issues... After that, I mean, that's a major surgery. And that kind of brought on some other little issues. And it's like the pain never, I mean, the pain from my kidney went away, but then there was other pain. So from 2000, February 2018 until December 29, 2019, I was on some sort of pain killers. Every day? Every day. Every day. Every day. And at the end, they had me on tramadol, but man, I was taking that stuff like nobody's business. And I even went to like a pain clinic at the U, and I sweet-talked my way into getting more, um, you know, it just, it was bad. Um, See, that's what's the fascinating part. There's a lot of fascinating stuff about your story, but it just shows you that addiction does not discriminate. And you look like the president of the PTA, you know, and and I mean, and then all of a sudden you're up there in the pain clinic and you say you sweet talk them and I'm sure you did. And they were like, there's no way this lady is trying to hoodwink us, but you were. I was, I was, Uh I I, I honestly, I I was, and I'm not proud of that, but, but I was. Well, you were, but, and I think it's important to take responsibility for that, but also you have to, to look back and say that you today wouldn't be doing that. That's the addicted yeah, the no, addictive they, side. No. Yeah, they and I even, and I even, think, I even had, I had friends who I knew had painkillers, and I'd be like, "Oh man, my doctor has not gotten back with me today. Is a rough day," knowing that they that they would offer it that they you. would offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which just makes me feel sick that I put them in that position. Um, so anyway, December of 2019, things were. I was free falling. I was. It was bad. Um, when I talk about like I didn't, I didn't deal with my divorce and that stuff. Um, that fall, 2019, my oldest son 
left his wife and little girl. And so it was hard. I mean, it would have been hard even had I not ever gone through a divorce myself. But it's like that was when I fell apart from mine as well as his, if that makes sense. No, yeah, it makes sense. I Was it the stress of seeing him go through that or – what, what about that experience pushed you? Well, it was so much like what his dad did. Mm. Reminiscent of, I mean, his dad left with somebody else and he's got a little girl and a wife and they just brought back all that pain that I had stuffed for all those years. And so it was, it was really, it was, it was awful. So December 29, um, I thought I had another prescription that I could pick up on. That was a Sunday. I thought there was a prescription I could pick up Monday Took my last pain pills um, and realized Sunday night I didn't have a prescription that I could fill until the middle of January. And I was like, this isn't good. My husband had left to go back to Nevada. I'm there. I'm like. He's work. You're living in Utah at this time. Mm -hmm. And he's working. I think you mentioned a couple weeks of the month away. So you're alone. Yeah. I'm home alone most of the time. So I was home by myself and I have never felt so scared in my life. I'm like, I, I, this is it. This is it. Like I, I have nothing. I don't know what I'm going to do. It was one of the worst nights of my life. Um, Tuesday, I went back into the doctor that I had gone to previously. Um, My doctor was out of town and my thought was, Okay, he's he's he knows my story, and I just thought I need to medically have help getting off of this. I can't just cold turkey it, and that's not what I got when I went in there. He hit me with both barrels, told me I was an addict, that I can't believe you did this. I can't believe this is where you're at. This is your doctor talking. Well. My previous doctor, because mine doctor. was mine was gone. So this is the guy I'd gone to years ago okay. when I was struggling and trying and getting off of him. And my thought was he'll understand, but man, he did not. And I'm like, can you help me get off these? I mean, I've been off of him for a day or so, but can you? And he's like, there is no way I'm going to give you anything. I'm not going to get put you back on him so I can wean you off. And he says. I'll give you something for your anxiety and for your nausea. And you need to get your life together. He gave me Xanax and something for my nausea and sent me out the door. And I was like, I, I, it was probably that first week was probably the worst week of my life. I have never felt so sick in my life. So I had to cold turkey it. Is that when you reached out to me? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I was like, hey, Casey, I've been following you on Facebook. I know your story. I am a mess. I don't know what to do. And you're like, here's my number. Call me. And I'm like, he gets his phone and he's like, hey, this is Casey. I'm like, and I was just like, I was so sick. I was, and I remember you saying, you want to go get breakfast and we'll talk. And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> no, give me applesauce. Like, and I can't even hold applesauce down. Um, and he did like every day for quite a few days, every day he was checking on me. Um, and he was, my, my insurance was just being a pain because they wouldn't do an inpatient. It was like 
all these hoops to get to an inpatient. And I'm like, I need help now. So so did, did that conversation come up that week about detoxing in a medical facility? We tried to figure out what we could do to get her help. But if I remember correctly, your insurance was that. And so – Yeah, they were – Yeah, so you kind of just white-knuckled it yourself. I did. I did. Well, the thing is that I got into my regular doctor like Thursday when he was back in. And he didn't pull any punches either, but he was he was loving at the same time. And he's like – Yeah, and he's like, but we're going to get you help. We're going to figure out what we need to do. And he's like, I'm going to start checking on things. I want you to start checking on things. Um, so Casey um, got me hooked up with Action Recovery. Um, at the time, I didn't have – I wasn't working, and they didn't have a day program at that time. So I was there for just a little bit, and then um, I just needed something to do during the day. So I switched. Um, have nothing – Nothing, a great accolades for action, but it, for me, it, it worked to do something different. So I went to Brighton, their IOP, and um, intensive outpatient program. Yeah, and it was it was the best thing I could have done. And since then, um, I've deep dived into therapy, gone back, done a lot of EMDR therapy for these other these events in my life. Um. But as I've my eating, like that's kind of come back up to the forefront of my the eating disorder behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but are I've, you in regular therapy now addressing those things? Yeah, yeah. In fact, about a month ago, I said, I told my therapist, I said, "This is just still still too much of a struggle. We got to dig deeper. We got to do more. I can't do this anymore." And a therapist loves to hear that. And so, yeah, and so we wants to do the work. You bet. So we have. We've just really been digging. I've got a nutrition coach that's helping me develop a positive relationship with eating, with food. Um, so I, I feel like I am probably at the best place I've ever been as far as eating. I'm not where I will be. I'm going to be at a better place, but. Um, I, it's just a process. It's just day by day. Some uh, jump, Jumping back to your recovery at Brighton, was there, we, we call them modalities, different things a person does, treatment modalities to, to, to be sober and uh, be in recovery. Were, was there anything that happened there that you really connected with that was helpful to you, a particular treatment modality? Um. We did a lot of the cognitive behavior, you know, that a lot of just a mindfulness and I I don't know what it's called, but I mean, really, well, I guess it kind of comes back to mindfulness, really thinking about the situation, you know, breaking it down, what is really happening. Um, journaling, that was one thing. That was encouraged, and that's one thing that's been key for me is to journal stuff. Mm-hmm. I, it helps tremendously. Um, our process groups, to me, being able to just listen to other people and listen, and then being able to share, to me, that was huge. I still do the aftercare, and to me, that is huge. 
like to listen to people and to talk it out, mm-hmm. that has been key for me. So as of today, how many months has it been since you've had an opioid? I'm uh, 17 months sober. Congratulations. That's yeah, amazing. That's great. And I remember before we brought you on the podcast, and I know you talked to myself and Dr. Matt, that you were nervous about your story because it's mm-hmm. not salacious. It's You didn't think that it was going to be – and I don't want to say this for – to be crass, but entertaining – and, and some of the stories have been entertaining and, you know, it, 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 everybody wants a good story. But I think your story is going to resonate with our listeners so much more because it's an every person's story that this could happen to any and everybody. It just goes back to show you that addiction does not discriminate and you don't know when it's going to hit you and you don't know how long it's going to last or what it's going to take to get you to overcome that. But I think the fact that you're still battling with your eating disorder, you have now been 17 months sober from opioids and you're doing the work, you're going to therapy, you're going to a process group, you're going to the gym and you found yourself a community because I go back, Dr. Matt, to your story and although you were surrounded by your kids in that it seems like much of your life you have felt alone. And it seems now that you're finding a community. And that's what we have found is truly the opposite of addiction is community. And we're so glad that you're a part of our community, that you're here, that you're willing to come share your story. Because I really do think people will learn so much from the battles you have fought and what you have done. And I'm glad to call you my friend. And I'm so blessed that you were able to come here and share your story. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, I think, I guess I wasn't even aware of the connection the two of you'd had during that time. So I think that's pretty neat to be able to have you on the show and, and talk about things. And um, I hope you'll stick with your therapy because, you know, I, I guess I'm trying to point out the fact that all of us, Anybody, I mean, we've seen it. Nobody's immune to the possibility of addiction, but I think we're all more susceptible to the possibility of addiction when our emotional lives are unhealthy and when we've been holding on to childhood traumas and when we've been holding on to insecurities and when we aren't directly dealing with our grief and our loss in our life. That sets us up for vulnerability and and addiction. So I think that's pretty cool that you're in there working on it and that you're actually telling the therapist we need to go deeper. And I like that because uh, I do love it when somebody comes in with a list. I want to do this today or they come in and they direct the therapy and they're that invested. So I, I think that's a great prognosis for success. So congratulations. That's cool. Thank you. And you made it without crying. Yeah, I did. I'm kind of surprised because I was, I was, when I talk about my mom and dad, that's, that's hard. Well, congratulations on your sobriety and thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, You're listening to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, more importantly about recovery. It's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.